grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Adult Perspective. I'm your host, Joe Sparrow. It has long been written into the Jigsaw Queensland Constitution that we aim to relieve the suffering, distress and helplessness of all those in the community who have been affected by adoption, donor conception and state wardship. You might ask, what does donor conception have to do with adoption? Well, quite a lot in fact. In recent times, donor-conceived adults have been advocating for the right to their genetic identity. This need mirrors that expressed by individuals affected by adoption who have advocated for adoption records to be opened, which was legislated in Queensland for the first time in the early 90s. Therefore, secrecy in relation to donor conception practices is similar to that inherent in the past closed adoption era. In Australia, it was common for anonymous donors to be used, and in many cases, this was the preferred practice. Current estimates suggest that there are at least 60,000 donor-conceived people living in Australia, with many being unaware of the truth of their conception. The practice of using of utilising anonymous gamete donors was addressed in the 2005 NHMRC guidelines, which stipulates that anonymous gametes should no longer be used anywhere in Australia. Regardless of the circumstances of their conception, like adopted people, donor-conceived people have reported experiencing difficulties in relation to feeling that they don't fully belong within the family in which they are raised, feeling a sense of loss in relation to disconnection from biological family, feeling a sense of loss that they are not genetically related to one or more of their legal parents and extended family members. The desire to know about and connect with genetic siblings, of which donor-conceived people can have a large number. Feeling an expectation that they should be grateful to the parents who went to so much effort to have them, which can lead to feelings of guilt for wanting to know about one's genetic and medical history. There are also some key differences between the lived experience of those affected by donor conception and those with the lived experience of adoption. And we have a list of those on our donor conception page at the Jigsaw Queensland website that you can go and have a, a look at. Recently, the Legal Affairs and Safety Committee of the Queensland Parliament has invited submissions for its inquiry into matters relating to donor conception information. The submission deadline is to be received by 5pm Friday 29th of April 2022, so that's not far away at all. Today I'm talking to two women who have lived experience of donor conception, Kath Galba, the mother of a donor conceived child, and Kate Drysdale, who was donor conceived. We'll be talking about their personal experiences and the current call for submissions, 
and where people affected by donor conception can find information, support and connect with others. So welcome to Adopt Perspective, Kath and Kate. Thank you both so much for joining us today to help spread the word about the upcoming inquiry. News can so often be missed, so it is really important that we do what we can to shine a light on it. And I thought we might just start with um, sharing a little about your stories, if that's okay. And I was wondering, Kate, if you might start. Yeah, of course. So I was born in 1991 through donor conception in Queensland. So my mother was treated by the Queensland Fertility Group in Brisbane. At the time, my mum was married but divorced my legal father when I was two years old. So my legal father never wanted me to know that I was donor conceived, um, whereas my mother did. So at the age of seven, mum decided to tell me that I was donor conceived. And it was certainly positive that I was told at a young age, but I think by the age of seven, I had already formed those foundations of my identity and, you know, I knew my place and where I fit within my family. So even at the age of seven, that was definitely shaken up by learning that I was donor conceived. So both prior to and after telling me that I was donor conceived, mum actually reached out to the clinic twice seeking further information about her donor, my biological father. So I grew up knowing only that he was a university student with brown hair and green eyes. And mum was told by a lady working at the clinic that many medical students had donated. And so this is what mum believed was the case throughout my growing years. And so, so did I. Um, I have definitely for the majority of my life, resign myself to the fact that I would never know who my biological father was. Um, but just before I turned 30, I was walking through the house and I overheard a TV show where there was a lady who had found her biological father through the use of donor codes. So at this point, I'd never had any support around this. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know that there were donor codes. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to reach out to this lady that I've seen on the TV. And she actually provided me with a lot of support and guidance around what I needed to do to contact the clinic. Um, so I got really excited and I was like, right, okay, I'm going to give this a go. So I contacted the clinic um, and was almost immediately shut down. So it turns out <laughs> that the information relating to what caused my very existence, my conception, isn't actually considered my medical information. So that was a big shock to me. And I had to get my mum to provide a consent form saying that I could access that information. So I couldn't access anything at all, not the donor code, not the um, non-identifying information, nothing without that consent. So I was very lucky that mum was supportive, but many donor conceived people don't have that support from their parents. So if they'd have reached that point, they wouldn't have got any further without that consent. Um, so 
I did end up receiving like a donor profile. It had extremely limited information. So, you know, the age he was when he donated, his blood type, um, his parents were alive at the time of his donation, how many siblings, and that he was actually a humanities student. So that was definitely more than I had, but it was very little information. So at that point, I requested that the clinic try to contact the donor. And I also wanted to know whether I had any siblings out there. So it took a couple of months of being told that they couldn't contact the donor and that they'd look through the records. And apparently I had no siblings at all. And by that point, I had sort of worked out that it's pretty uncommon for donor-conceived people to not have any siblings, given that donations were used for so many people. So I was waiting for that. And during that time, I did a DNA test through a consumer DNA company. And when I got my results back, there was a sibling. So I reached out and I actually spoke to his mum who contacted the clinic to try to see whether um, a sibling that they may have identified in that time was him. So they at one point told me that there may be one sibling, don't know whether it's a boy or a girl, probably born in the same year as I was, but that was the extent of the information. And it actually turned out that the sibling that I had found through DNA testing was not that sibling. So who knows how many there are because parents were not obliged to report successful pregnancies and they weren't obliged to tell their children that they were donor conceived in the first place um so yeah I just didn't get any information from them at all and I ended up building a big family tree through my DNA matches looking for a man that sort of met those few little pieces of information that I'd been given um and I did actually end up working out who it was I even managed to find a phone number and I was sort of at the point of deciding how I was going to proceed with that information when I was contacted by the clinic saying that they had managed to get in contact with the donor and that he was open to having contact with me. So again, I got really excited. All right. I get to meet this man. Um, And then we were, forced through a rather awkward counselling process. So each one of us had to do a mandatory counselling session, which I understood to an extent. Um, But then we were also told that we would have to meet for the first time with the counsellor via Skype Mm -hmm. because of the distance between us. And that made me really angry because it was such an invasion of our privacy and such an awkward thing to be on a computer with a stranger 
meeting your biological father for the first time and your biological daughter for the first time. And I actually refused to do that. So I let the clinic know that I had identified who the donor was and that they needed to pass on an email from me with my contact details um, so that he could make the choice whether he wanted to reach out to me or not. So thankfully they agreed to that. Um, so from the time I originally made the request for information from the clinic, um, it had been almost 15 months until I finally got in contact with my biological father. And he actually told me later that he had contacted the clinic years earlier. Oh, that is so frustrating. <laughs> to tell them that he was open to contact with anybody who was to reach out to the clinic and that he updated all of his information and it, that it was actually quite a lengthy process that he went through to do that with a lot of paperwork and all of that. And it's just amazing to me that we had to go through 15 months of this when he'd given consent years earlier yeah and I mean in that time he could have passed away I mean that's yeah that's time that things could have happened to make it never happen yeah exactly yeah. and I'm look I'm really grateful to be able to form a bit of a relationship with him and I'd say that we have a friendship it's certainly no form of father-daughter relationship and that's not really what I was seeking you know I was 30 when I was looking for this but we're very similar and it's given me that increased sense of self I'm not looking in the mirror every day thinking oh I wonder where that comes from you know we both have the same overlapping tooth we both <laughs> you know we both went into the social sciences um I went into social work and he went into humanities and yeah. So it's amazing to see those similarities um, even though we'd never met before. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I found through that whole process was I joined a heap of Facebook groups with donor conceived people in them. Um, so I actually found an amazing group of donor conceived people from all over Australia and many of whom have been advocating for legislative change for up to 20 years across other states of Australia and at a federal level as well. So I'm really just in awe of the work that they've done for all the states and to support each other to improve rights for donor conceived people in Australia. So in 2021, we work together to create Donor Conceived Australia, which is a national not-for-profit charitable organisation led by donor conceived people. And we offer support, education and advocacy on behalf of people conceived via assisted reproductive treatments. So that's sperm, egg and embryo donation throughout Australia. So that group has been a huge support to me. They've probably been my main support when it comes to being donor conceived and navigating all that that brings with it. Yeah. And that community is just so important, isn't it? When you connect with other people who you don't have to explain anything to you, they're not going to say anything silly to you, you know, that's going to upset you. 
um, and you're working towards the one cause and it's community is probably one of the most important things I think they almost become like another family yeah exactly it's been absolutely invaluable to me because it's particularly up here in far north Queensland donor conception isn't exactly a talked about topic <laughs> it, it you know no one really knows anything about it and everybody sort of glazes over and makes many many comments about you know oh you must feel so loved and so wanted Mm -hmm. and yes I do but that doesn't invalidate I guess the trauma that's come along with all of this there's so much crossover with what um, people who are affected by adoption feel as well just hearing you say that it's the same kind of thing that we hear yeah yeah exactly look thank you so much for sharing your story um Kate And I was thinking maybe, um, Kat, would you like to share a bit about um, your story? Sure. Thank you for having us on. It's really great to have this opportunity. So I'm what's called a recipient parent. That means I went to a clinic and I used uh, donor sperm to conceive my child. And I did that at the time in a jurisdiction, it was in New South Wales, but at the time it it had the same system that Queensland has now. What that means is there was no statutory scheme and that the provision of donor sperm and eggs and embryos was done under the NHMRC guidelines. And even at the time that I went to the clinic, those guidelines specify and have done since 2005 that um, anonymous donor sperm or anonymous donor gametes should never be used that it's it's well recognised now in the research. So in contrast to 40 years ago when donor conception started in Australia, um, we know now, back then it was a brand new industry and people didn't have much research and they didn't really know what they were doing. Again, there's a very strong analogy there to adoption, that in early adoption practices, people thought secrecy was paramount. um, And in early donor conception practices, people thought secrecy and anonymity were paramount. But now we have a have had 40 years of this industry, if not longer. Um, And so since 2005, the NHMRC guidelines have said you shouldn't use anonymous gametes because it's not in the best interests of the donor conceived. So armed with this knowledge, because that's the kind of person I am, I went to a clinic and I uh, restricted my choice of donor to a donor who agreed to be both identified and contacted. And those are two different things. Identification is one thing and contact is another. And I chose a donor who agreed to both. And then my partner and I had our child um, from the very first day that our child was born. We always told our child that they were donor conceived. There was never any secret. Um, And under those guidelines, uh, the donor had agreed to contact and identification. And the procedure was that if my child ever wanted to contact the donor, that we would write to the clinic and the clinic would reach out to the donor. And I had all of this in writing. So for the first five years of my uh, child's life, we told my child that they could contact their donor if they wanted to. And then uh, my child, even though they were relatively young, when they were five years old, really insisted that they wanted to meet their donor. And so we said, okay, and we did what we were asked to do, which was contact the clinic. And there ensued four years of obfuscation, lies, blocking, stonewalling, refusing to return phone calls, refusing to answer letters, refusing to abide by the guidelines. I wrote them lengthy letters quoting the guidelines. I wrote to them and said, their view, they said that the donor had contacted them and changed his mind. 
And I said, well, can the donor change their mind? And to, to, that's a pretty grey legal question, to be honest. And mm. uh, and so I cited the guidelines and I said, this isn't fair. And I, and I made the differentiation between identity and contact. And I said, it's really important to my child at least to know the identity. If the person doesn't want contact, I, I respect that. But refusing identity is a completely different matter. Anyway, this took, this, it took a very, very long time for me even to get answers out of them. They kept saying they had sent me letters which never arrived in the post. I changed my mailbox to a lockable mailbox just in case my mail was going missing. Of course, it wasn't. Um, and eventually, uh, the clinic that I had gone to in the meantime had been bought out by another company, which then in the meantime had been bought out by another company. And this is another factor in this area because clinics are very regularly bought and sold. And that puts these very important historic uh, records about people's identities at risk. But um, the CEO of the clinic that now owns the materials from the clinic when I, from, that I got treatment at um, eventually wrote to me and said, well, after all, they're just guidelines. <laughs> and incredibly and, frustrating and yet every time uh, you know there was a there was a newspaper story about the launch of this Queensland inquiry in which they spoke to a doctor and the doctor was quoted in the newspaper just a couple of weeks ago as saying but we have the NHMRC guidelines and the NHMRC guidelines say that don't, anonymous gametes shouldn't be used and the, the guidelines say that people have access to identification when they turn 18. So what's the problem? This is the problem. The guidelines do not work. They're just guidelines. We need a statutory scheme. We've got story after story. I'm sure Kate can tell you more than I can. Story after story after story of donor-conceived people being let down by this system. So, uh, so that's my story. There's one more component to it, which is that um, prior to the change of law in New South Wales in 2010, I wrote to the clinic because as a recipient parent, I was entitled legally to know the gender and year of birth of any siblings. So I wrote to the clinic to ask for this information and it took them quite a long time, but they sent me a letter with four siblings on it. And subsequently, after the change of law in 2010, they established a proper register in New South Wales. And the only way to get a clinic to provide the information to the register was to require it by putting in a formal request. So even though I already had this letter, I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write through the register and I'm gonna make the same request again, just for the purpose of requiring the clinic to put those records on the register where they will be safely held in perpetuity. And it took them a very long time to get back to me and I couldn't understand why, but eventually I got a letter back which had a completely different list of siblings and it had 10 siblings. Oh, wow. And so the information that I was given by the clinic when they were not required under a statutory scheme to provide me with accurate information was inaccurate. And then the information that they were required to provide under a statutory scheme to the New South Wales Register, they obviously took more care over because then they really noticed they counted up all the siblings. And so the, to, it just, it, it was extraordinary to me that these two letters, which I was expecting to be identical, were so different. And that's the difference a statutory scheme makes. Yeah. The clinics have to provide, when the, when the fertility providers have to give that information to a government-run register, and they know they have to abide by the law, they take due care. When they're just dealing with people like Kate and people like me, those stories that Kate was talking about where 
they lie to you, they don't give, they don't respond to your requests, they tell different people who use the same donor different information about the same donor. They just don't show due diligence. They just don't behave in appropriate ways. And I don't even think it's necessarily malicious. Mm -hmm. I think it's just because their business model isn't built on doing that work well. It doesn't matter to their businesses if they do that part of their job well or badly. The other part, that matters. <laughs> but that part, it really doesn't matter. And the only way to make them do it well is to have a statutory scheme. So that's why we've pushed for this inquiry. I am so sorry that you guys have um, been dealing with that. And I've read so many other stories and I know that um, it's like that right around Australia and, um, and in other countries as well. And it just shows why it's so important that this inquiry is happening in Queensland and, um, and why people need to put some, some submissions in. And I know that the coming inquiry is something that people affected by donor conception have long advocated for. So can I just take a moment to acknowledge and congratulate you both and, and everyone who's been working toward this um, for the incredible amount of work and blood, sweat, tears that goes into bringing an inquiry like this about. It can be incredibly frustrating and at times a painful process. And um, to have made it even this far is just such a wonderful achievement. So congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Kath, could you tell us a little bit about what matters the inquiry will be looking at? So the inquiry is looking into the question of whether or not Queensland should have a register mm -hmm. that all clinics would be required to um, provide their information to so that it's held centrally and safely in perpetuity. Obviously, I think that should happen. Yeah. They're also looking into the question of anonymity, that is whether um, donor-conceived people should always have the ability to identify their donor. And as you can tell again from the things I've been saying so far, um, and Kate will talk about this as well, um, I think that it's absolutely vital that anonymity is removed um, because that's what's necessary for the well-being of the donor-conceived people. And it's not unusual in Australian family law, for example, to prioritise the best interests of the child. And what we have to do here is prioritise the best interests of the people who were conceived through these processes and who had no say in it and whose rights have to be paramount. And there's and been I'm so sure much research, just even from adoption side, to show that that is true. I mean, it's not like the information isn't out there. We know that people need access to their identifying information and the ability right. to create, you know, have contact if they want and, and learn about their biological history. We know this. That's right. And in Queensland at the moment, we only have the guidelines. We don't have any legislation that says that, uh, that requires the information to be kept on a register. We don't actually have a register. Um, and, and we've already told you that the guidelines don't work. So that's why we need a statutory scheme. One of the really important things is the question of retrospectivity. And there are some people who think that you can't make identification retrospective. You have to do it from the point at which you legislate forward. And that's really, really unfair because it means that literally people born after a particular date have access to life-changing identifying information about their identity and their heritage 
and other people don't. So you just, I, I understand that retrospectivity is not normally a good practice in public mm -hmm. policy, but this is an area just like in adoption where we have to have retrospectivity. So they're looking at the best, the inquiry is looking at what's in the best interest of the donor conceived, whether we should have a statutory scheme, whether we should have anonymity, how you protect the rights of the donors. And I think the way that you protect the rights of the donors, in my view, is that you differentiate between identity and contact and you allow the donors to say no to contact if they want to say no to contact, but they're not allowed to say no to identity. So that's, that's really most of what they're looking at. Yeah, I mean, and once again, I mean, this was the same arguments that came up around when closed adoption era was ending. And it was, you know, you've got to respect that anonymity, I can't get that word out. Um, and because they were promised that, you know, identifying information would never be sought. And you know what, Chicken Little, the sky did not fall when that wall crumbled. And, um, you know, and and there, you know, if people don't want contact, that can be managed afterwards and, and people can be supported through that. But you should have access to your identifying information. Yeah. And like Kate's experience, <clears throat> there are a lot of donors, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> like Kate's experience, there are a lot of donors who actually would prefer to be contactable, who were never given the opportunity. They were just told this is anonymous and it's going to be anonymous for the rest of your lives. And they were told that 40 years ago, 30 years ago in Kate's case. And things have changed. We know more now. We have the research. We know we know what we need to do to ensure people's well-being. Mm -hmm. And while I appreciate that someone 40 years ago might have been promised anonymity, that doesn't mean that that should take priority over the well-being of the adults who are now on the planet who live this experience. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And can I just make a comment on that as well? There is very little evidence to suggest that these forms that apparently ensured anonymity even excluded, you know, donor conceived people from finding out the identity of their biological parents. I have seen a couple that will say, you know, the information will not be released to recipient parents, um, but there is very little to show that. And also, for us donor-conceived people that were born during that strict era of anonymity, we weren't even conceived yet. We cannot be held to so-called contracts that we were not even in existence to consent to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also, I mean you know, in your case, Kate, and probably a lot of people, your um, donor father was a university student. How can you think that how he thought and how he saw things at that age would be how a grown man would um, see things? You know, we, we develop, we change, we think about things more deeply. Exactly. And donors have a right to be consulted around their views and to have that option as well. And I think we always, this issue is always looked at from the perspective that, oh no, we've got to protect anonymity because, you know, donors would be horrified. But in many cases, that's not the case at all. And their rights have also been taken away in this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I know you're both going to be putting submissions in. I've, I've read um, Cass and you're a rock star. It's a brilliant um, submission. And, you know, I encourage anyone that's um, affected to go and have a look at these as they start piling up. Um, so can I ask you, Kate, what are you going to be asking for in your submission? So I might talk quickly about Donor Conceived Australia first. So we're working yep. on a submission, including the views of our over 500 members who are Australia-wide. Um, we are really excited about this because it's the first time that a national group of all donor-conceived individuals have come together to submit to an inquiry like this. Um, so... Previously, we've only had small groups and individuals, and this is the first time that we're united and being able to submit to an inquiry. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, and we're also working towards providing support to both our members, but also members of the public who would like to provide a submission, but maybe they don't know where to start with that. Um, I will be submitting my own individual submission as a donor-conceived person conceived in Queensland, and so will my mother and my biological father, the donor. So I really encourage anybody, donor-conceived or not, to make a submission to the inquiry if you feel that you have something to say to the committee. Um, so as far as what we're advocating for, both DCA and myself, we are working from the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child and as well as the Geneva Principles on Donor Conception and Surrogacy, which were actually provided to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child by donor-conceived people. So from this standpoint, we're strongly advocating for a regulatory framework in which the best interests and rights of the child created or the person created by donor conception are of paramount importance in all decision-making policy and practice relating to assisted reproductive technology. And this includes the right to identifying information about our origins, including donor and sibling linking services, regardless of when or where we were conceived. Um, so that's that retrospective release of information because we do feel that it is discrimination to award rights to one section of a population and not the other. Um, we are arguing that this information should be managed by an independent body that is established separate from the fertility industry. We just do not support that clinics should continue to be responsible for this information management and record keeping. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So just to make a point on this, one very important aspect of a register would be to collect data on donor conception, including how many of us there actually are. Mm -hmm. So earlier you mentioned there are at least 60,000 donor conceived people in Australia. And the reality is we don't know this. These records were not recorded. And even when records were kept, many of these have been lost or intentionally destroyed by the clinics. So, the data that we do have to work with um, is data released recently from the Victorian Register that's managed by VADA. 
So they've released figures showing that there are currently 32,000 donor-conceived people in Victoria alone, and these numbers don't include informal donor conception or those people whose information was never recorded or not lost. You can't add something to a register if it doesn't exist. Um, Another major issue with donor-conceived people being able to access information is that, as you mentioned, many donor-conceived people just don't know they're donor conceived. So if you don't know that you're donor conceived, you can't access that information. And this can result in donor conceived people discovering accidentally and in very problematic ways, like in the middle of a big family argument or they got given a DNA test for Christmas or family friend accidentally lets something slip. So obviously that's highly traumatic. So we want donor-conceived people to not only know the truth about their origins, but to have support throughout their journey of discovery and that information seeking and possibly even contact with their genetic families if that is what everybody is open to. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I'm so excited to read those um, submissions when they go in and um, we will have a link up so that you can go to um, that webpage and look at the submissions as they come in. Um, I think it's so important too that you get a lot of submissions because I think these people who are going to be making these decisions don't even really realise how many people are impacted. I mean, do you think it's important that a lot of people put through submissions? Certainly. The more, the better. Um, We need to get our voices out there whether we are, you know, recipient parents, donor-conceived mm-hmm. people, donors, family members of donor-conceived people or donors, or anybody with a general interest in making sure that everybody has a right to know where they come from and what yeah. their identity is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, so yes. the so the Queensland Queensland is benefiting in a way from being the last place in Australia to do this. <laughs> so there was a federal Senate inquiry in 2011 into donor conception, which uh, recommended that all the jurisdictions that at that point in time, so that's 11 years ago, that didn't yet have a statutory scheme in place that included. Um, identifying information being provided to the donor conceived and required the clinics to provide that data to to a register in each jurisdiction. So in 2011, they made those recommendations federally and they said every state or territory that doesn't yet have a scheme should uh, move as a matter of priority, that was their words, as a matter of priority to ensure that they introduce some kind of a scheme. And since then, every jurisdiction has done something, some more than others. So Western Australia's had a really comprehensive review. Uh, South Australia's had a very comprehensive review in the introduction of a register. New South Wales introduced a register, but unfortunately with a 2010 cutoff, so people born after 2010 get access to identifying information. People born before 2010 only get it if the donor chooses to go on the register. So it's not mandatory. So that's a really unfair thing. Tasmania has introduced some law reform. The ACT is literally currently having a part, having an internal inquiry. It's a gov- it's being run internally by government. It's not an 
an external one like this where we can make submissions. It's internal only, but the ACT has currently got a procedure happening as well. So everywhere except, and I don't believe the Northern Territory has done anything yet. So everyone except probably the Northern Territory and certainly Queensland hasn't has started moving on this, but Queensland is really late to the party. The advantage of being late to the party is that you can learn from the other states what not to do. So I've already mentioned that in New South Wales, they've got this cutoff of 2010. And if you were born before 2010, you don't have the same rights as if you were born after 2010. I think that's really unfair. Uh, Victoria has a loophole in their laws that if you were conceived using donated gametes in Victoria, then you have access to identifying information now, regardless of when you were born. They've made it retrospective. But there's a loophole that people can import sperm from internationally or eggs or embryos. And if they import gametes from internationally and they use them to achieve a pregnancy, they're not caught within the Victorian procedure. So there's this terrible loophole where people can still access anonymous gametes from internationally and that loophole needs to be closed. Um, so we've, and we also know from my experience, for example, in New South Wales, that you need to make it mandatory for the clinics to provide their data because otherwise they don't pay close enough attention and they don't ensure that the information they're giving donor-conceived people and recipient parents is actually accurate. So we have a real opportunity here to really actually put forward some, some really good policy in this space because we're one of the last jurisdictions in Australia to be doing it. So I'm really actually quite hopeful that we might we might learn from some of these other experiences and actually end up with a really good system in Queensland. Yeah, I totally agree with that. We're the same. Our adoption legislation is about to call for submissions as well to um, put the next round of changes through that. And we've just seen a Victorian report come out, you know, to see what's happened since they had, um, you know, their inquiry and, you know, all the things that haven't happened that should have happened by now. And so it is an opportunity for legislators to, to be looking at all of that, learning and, and getting it right. So come on, Queensland, like, look at all of that. Do a good job. Be a leader. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the lead up to this episode, and we didn't have long, so I really thank you both for um, very quickly pulling everything together because um, we really wanted to get this out in time to reach people so they could make a submission. But in the lead up, I was telling you both that the Jigsaw Queensland website gets a lot of traffic and our single, we've only got one page about donor conception with a bit of information on it. And it is consistently in the top eight most visited pages on our website. And before this recording, I checked the analytics again and it is currently our third most visited page, which is, I mean, it really says something. Um, and we also get a lot of people calling us looking for information and support, which tells me that people really need information and most particularly support. So, Kate, you've been talking about Donor Conceived Australia, which we've put some information up on our website now and some flyers about them. Um, what would you say to people who are looking for information and support? What should they do? Yeah, so I would definitely recommend that anyone looking for information or support jump onto Donor Conceived Australia's website. That's www.donorconceivedaustralia.com.au. So we've got a ton of new information coming to the website very soon with a wealth of information for donor conceived people and the wider community. We can also be found on social media at DC underscore AUST or AUST. 
We offer regular online peer support and national networking groups to meet with other donor-conceived adults. And we can also help you to find support or information about how to access any registers in your state if you're not in Queensland. And if you would like support writing a submission to the Queensland Inquiry, please send us a message on our website and a member of DCA will be in contact as soon as we can to see how we can help. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. And look, thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, Jigsaw Queensland will be making a submission to the inquiry and we fully support you in achieving your human rights to access to information, records, genetic origins and the establishment of a donor conception register, as well as vital funding for support services. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your support and for having us on. Yeah, and thank you also to the donor-conceived people who've put together the Donor Conceived Australia site with all its resources and all its advocacy. They're they're the people we need to be listening to. It's absolutely paramount. But thank you, Charlie. So as I said earlier, we'll pop up some relevant links on our podcast notes page. So to be sure to check them out. And um, meanwhile, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If so, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.